Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Catherine Stamen-Breen. Catherine is the CEO of Boston-based Chroma Medicine. Chroma is working on therapies that control gene expression through epigenetic editing. Now, just for some context, people have heard a lot about editing of the genome through CRISPR and then subsequent refinements of the technology known as base editing and prime editing. The question at Chroma is a newer one. It boils down to whether it is possible to achieve a similar kind of effect with the potential for single-shot cures by making edits to the epigenome. In other words, can you achieve the same kind of life-changing result by leaving the underlying DNA sequence intact, but then just altering how the genes are expressed? The work is still in the early stages. Chroma hasn't publicly disclosed its targets, disease indications, or preclinical results it has achieved thus far. The company first came out of stealth mode with a $125 million Series A financing with a prominent set of scientific founders and investors back in November of 2021. I wrote about it then on TimmermanReport.com. Over the following year, the company made enough progress to secure $135 million Series B financing led by GV and which included all of its existing investors. I expect to hear some scientific presentations later this year, which might explain why that investment group chose to double down, even in a difficult time for financing startups. Catherine is a physician by training, and nephrology was her original specialty. She started out in academic medicine at the University of Washington, and then made the move to industry, working her way up in clinical development roles at Amgen and Regeneron. She found new challenges in the startup world in Boston, Cambridge, a little over five years ago. It's really a confluence of skills, experiences, and network that have put her in position to run such an interesting and ambitious young startup like Chroma. And now for a word from the sponsor of the long run, Scientist.com. Tired of spending hours searching for exact research products and services you need? Scientist.com is here to help. Their award-winning digital platform makes it easy to find and purchase life science reagents, lab supplies, and custom research services from thousands of global laboratories. Scientist.com helps you outsource everything but the genius. Save time and money and focus on what really matters, your groundbreaking ideas. Learn more at scientist.com slash long run. Catherine Stamen-Breen, welcome to The Long Run. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Catherine, uh, first question, how did you decide to locate here next to Fenway Park? Of course, it's next to Fenway Stadium. Where else would you want to be? Um, no, in, in all seriousness, we started looking around for space. Gosh, it's been um, probably two and a half years ago. Very hot uh, real estate market um, and hard to find space. And it was important to us. Uh, we wanted to remain within the fairly close to Cambridge, within essentially walking distance to Cambridge. Cambridge was pretty tight. And Fenway was an emerging space. And uh, we came and looked at the space here in Fenway, got very excited about the opportunity to be in a, a new building that was going to be filled with uh, life sciences and primarily biotech. I think um, the the team members that were at the company at the time were excited about 
maybe moving to another space, but not necessarily moving way outside of uh, outside of Cambridge. And so we landed on Fenway. Do you get tickets to the games? Well, we don't need tickets. We can see the jumbotron from our windows. <laughs> we don't. We don't get. Uh, we don't get tickets. But we are anxious. The first game is actually tomorrow. We're anxious to see how uh, how uh, snarled we get in traffic. But uh, more importantly, uh, kind of what the vibe is here on on a game day. Uh, we got a, a little bit of a balcony, so if uh, folks want to sit outside on the balcony in the spring and summer, they'll be able to at least see the jumbotron at Fenway, which you know is kind of the heart and soul of Boston. So it's yeah, cool. It is a nice view. I can confirm. I saw it from the lunchroom. Yeah, the jumbotron. We're, we're really uh, we're pleased. We also hear that in the summer when there's concerts, the music floats up, and so we moved in in November, and so we we haven't. Uh, you know, we've, we've gotten sort of the feel for the Fenway neighborhood, but not that buzz, I think, that you get in uh, the spring and the summer and the fall. So, yeah. Well, these are the things that biotech CEOs think about, how to create <laughs> an environment to motivate your team and keep them yeah. happy. And yeah, <laughs> a lot of it's, you know, about culture and traditions and um, things you can build together to bring people together. Excellent. Well, we'll get to uh, what you're doing here with Chroma uh, in a bit, but I'd like to start with a little bit about you. Uh, so where are you from, Catherine? I'm originally from Chicago. I grew up in one of the small suburbs outside of Chicago. Which one? It's called Western Springs. Oh, I don't know that one. <laughs> so I, I usually ask people if they've ever been to the, been to the Brookfield Zoo, because it's not too far from the uh, Brookfield Zoo, which is a, a big zoo out in the suburbs. Uh-huh. So um, what brought your family there? Uh, so... Um, my mother's side of the family, she came, she and her family came over during World War II. Um, my grandfather, they came from France, uh, during World War II. My grandfather and his brothers had a, uh, a business that had an office in Chicago. And so they came over on a business trip and didn't go back. And, um, she and my grandparents lived there for uh, my my mother's still alive, so she still lives there. And my grandparents lived in the same place for many, many, many years. So yeah, it became home for them. So you had deep roots there. Yeah, yeah. My father's side of the family is from Illinois, and so uh, I guess I am. I'm a, I'm a Midwesterner from the beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any siblings? I do. I have a brother. Yeah, brother lives in Oklahoma. Uh huh. Older or younger? Uh, older. Yeah. Okay, so there were two of you, and what did your mom and dad do for a living? So my my mother was a school teacher and she taught French, and then uh, became an antique dealer. And my uh, my father worked in in banking, so n- neither in science. Uh huh. So. so how did you get interested in science? You know, I I it's funny. I I was not. Not for any really uh, any great reason. When I was a kid, it was one of those things, you know, you ask somebody when they're, I don't know, eight years old, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I always said, I want to be a doctor. I don't know that I had any good reason it when I was eight to say I wanted to be a doctor. And I, it just kind of stuck and I took science classes in high school and was a biology, psychology double major in college. I always liked science and um I uh, continued to think I, I wanted to go to medical school. That's what I did. And I, I never regretted it, but I never really thought about doing anything else. What kind of schools did you attend? Yeah, so I went in Chicago. I went to the public school for you know, for the duration. There's great uh, public schools in um, 
in the Chicago area, a lot of, you know, sort of deeply value education. And um, the suburb I grew up in was part of a township high school. It was an enormous high school. I had 1,100 kids in my graduating class. And so wow. uh, unlike many people that start out at smaller high schools and want to go to something very large for college, I wanted to go to something small because um, I felt like I'd already experienced big, at least in the college or high school sense of the word. Um, and so I ended up going to college in in Maine and to a small liberal arts school and uh, and loved it. It was uh, a very different experience. I, I had a great high school education and, and had access to all sorts of things that I might not have had access to, but I also really enjoyed the um, the closeness, the tightness of a, of a smaller college community. And what, what kind of student were you in high school? You know, I've I'm always been a uh, I've always been a pretty good at following the rules. So I was a, a good student. I worked hard, and um, I, you know, I I sort of followed that straight and narrow path uh, in high school. So, and you're thinking in high school, you know, go to college become a doctor. Like you were yeah. pretty much on a that yeah. straight path. Never really thought about, never occurred to me that I wouldn't go to college. Uh, it was just, that was the path. And I, I followed that path. And what college did you attend in Maine? I went to Colby. Okay. Yeah. And so this was smaller. How, how yeah. many, do you remember how many in your class? people in my class. So it was, huh. you know, a third the size of my high school, my high school class. Yeah. And you said biology and psychology. Yeah. It was a double major. I thought I was going to be a so I, I thought I was going to be a, a psychologist, actually, at one point um, during uh, college. And then uh, all of the psychology professors told me I was crazy. If I wanted to go that route, I should become a psychiatrist. And so when I started medical school, I actually thought maybe I'd become a psychiatrist. And I was probably mostly because, you know, you're, you're so influenced by the people that you spend time with that you... Um, you know, that inspire you and are supportive of you. And the psychology department at Colby, I um, I had a, a really good relationship with all of the professors. I actually stayed a year after I graduated from college and worked in the department and uh, taught uh, clinical research um, methodology, uh, or I guess it was psychology research methodology during that year. And so, you know, you sort of think you're going to continue to follow that path. After your undergraduate? Yeah, after I after I graduated. I took a year in between college and medical school. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, were there any particular professors or teachers that stood out for you in those years? That Yeah, I mean, it's a long time ago now, but uh, there were. I mean, there was... Uh, you know, Ed Uterian, who at the time was a, a younger psychology um, professor at Colby that was um, uh, a neuropsychologist. And at, at the time, he was doing work that was, you know, maybe a, a neuropsychology now is just, you know, I can, it doesn't sound very cutting edge, but at the time, um, most people still weren't thinking of psychiatric diagnoses in terms of what pathologic mechanism was causing the, you know, the disease. And so the work he was doing was inspiring. Um, I worked closely with a, a guy named Ed Uterian that got me interested in um, research methodology. And um, Was he looking at genetics or other basic mechanisms? Like a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is this. I mean, surely this well, was but, a while but ago. I think the point, though, is that... Um, there was science. 
Oh, yeah, you're kidding this. It wasn't because uh, some people yeah, listening was, yeah. might, might have think you know psychology is not not quite as quantitative, shall we no, say? No, for sure. I mean, I so the the research that I ended up doing while I was there. You know, was was actually more quantitative research because I wasn't doing the the neuropsychology type research, um, and it's what led me to start. Uh, I mean, I took a you had to take a research methodology course, and it's what led me to then start being a TA for research methodology. And I I I really really liked it. And it's it's funny, I actually during medical school, I almost sort of forgot about this experience and it sort of linked up with some of the things later that I ended up doing. But, you know, this was this was in the early days of computers. So, you know, this is when they first introduced Mac computers when they were those like big towers and you, like there were no laptops or anything. So I remember um, gaining access to uh, a statistical program for the very first time. I mean, when I took s the um, statistics in in psychology, everything was done by hand. Mm. And so I remember gaining access for the first time to what was, you know, in retrospect, the most simplistic statistical program. But you could, you know, enter some numbers and push a button and you had an answer. It was, it was extraordinary. And, and this so, feeds okay. into research methods because you can yeah. collect a lot of data yeah. and you can analyze a lot yeah. of data and you can do it more quickly. Yeah. And, and uh, this is how we learn things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, it was a great uh, it was a great experience and was ultimately quite influential in what I ended up doing later. So, but you're going to medical school yeah. uh, to become a doctor, like a clinician, where you think you treat patients. Yeah, I I did. I, you know, it's it's like many things in life, though, and and maybe more so then because it's it was harder to to research things. You don't really know what you're getting into in, until you're in the middle of it, unless. You have a parent that has a doctor that's a doctor or, you know, somebody that you know closely. So I, I don't know if I, when I started, if I really had a, a great image of what I was going to do, but I, you know, it, it was something that intrigued me. And so I took that year off and ended up applying to medical school, um, ended up going to University of Chicago, which was kind of funny because I... I had said when I left Chicago, I grew up in the, the suburbs, I thought it was honestly the most boring place on earth growing up. In retrospect, <laughs> as a parent, it was a good place to grow up. But uh, I, I was never planning on going back. And and I got into University of Chicago and decided to go back and go to University of Chicago. And I, I'd never lived in the city before. And I absolutely loved it. I loved the school. It was a small classes, 100 people per class. You knew everybody. You were tight with everybody. Um, you were, you know, you were going through an experience truly together as a community and everybody was quite supportive. And University of Chicago is, a, is just a very interesting university. The graduate programs are larger than the undergrads. It's got a lot of history. It's kind of got this deep soul to it that's a little quirky on on top of it. And it was it was a pretty um, fantastic four years during medical school um, where I I ultimately decided to pursue internal medicine, do a residency in internal medicine, and um, uh, and solidified that interest and passion for helping patients. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so internist, you can do a lot of different things. A lot things. of different things. There's a lot of optionality. It's I really, it's no great surprise, like the specialty of internal medicine because it touches so much um, disease pathology. And at the end of the day, of course, I had no idea then that I would end up in in biotech, but it um, it gives you a very 
it gives you the most optionality, truly, if you're going to go into biotech because you touch so many different subspecialties in internal medicine as, as you're going through that training. Um, and even when you're entering a subspecialty, you end up touching so many of the other subspecialties, um, you know, even as a subspecialist. And so it gives you a tremendous amount of breadth. It's, you're never doing the same thing every day. And, uh, and if one likes to do a little, something a little bit different every day, it, it provides, um, it provides that uh, variety of uh, exposure to different things. So during those years, were you thinking that that would be your career? You would be a clinician seeing patients, or were you thinking you might do something else with the MD? Yeah, I don't think I ever imagined that I would go into private practice. That was not something I think that appealed to me. I, you know, University of Chicago is a pretty academic place, and so I think the general expectation, and, and frankly, probably more than, I bet, more than half of the people that I graduated with stayed in academics, maybe even more. Just a kind of, again, deeply academic environment that... Um, so be a physician sure. scientist. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so that's what I anticipated that I would do. Mm-hmm. What exactly I would do, I, I didn't really know at the time. Mm-hmm. So what did you do? So I went to University of Washington uh, and did a general internal medicine residency. And you know, again, like most things, you become what you ultimately end up doing is to a, a large degree influenced by the people that in the experiences that uh, the people you meet in the experiences that you have. And I um, probably my most memorable rotation was in nephrology. And so as I was trying to decide what I was going to do as a subspecialist, um, I had a, a really amazing rotation with um, one of the nephrologists, he was, he actually, uh, <laughs> he was an interesting guy. He did research, um, you know, was one of those people that that really can, can you connect with and you feel inspired by. Um, Who was it? So uh, it was Dr. Oh gosh, what was his name? Dr. Bernstein. He, so he actually ended up so I, I started my fellowship, and bef- before I started my fellowship, he announced he was leaving and joining biotech, interestingly. And so I never ended up working with him, but he influenced me as I was trying to decide what I was going to do. And I sort of attracted to nephrology in, in part because it made sense. You know, there are some there are some subspecialties that are far more art than science, um, and that's probably evolved a bit as time has progressed and we've under, as we gain deeper understanding of biology, but nephrology made sense. Acid base, it makes sense, you know, and, and, uh, um, and I, I liked that. I what liked years that uh, are we talking? Oh gosh. So I started my fellowship in 1993. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and how long were you there? Uh, so, the, so you started as a fellow, yeah. but then you went on to the faculty. I did, right? Yeah. So I started as a fellow, and you know, did you? you so, a nephrology fellowship is can be two, more likely three years. The first year is a clinical year, and then subsequently you do research. And during my clinical year, I started talking to this professor, Don Sherard, who was telling me that he was 
just um, trying to get uh, submitted and funded a clinical research training fellowship. And he started telling me about what it was going to be and and what it entailed. And and there's many, many of these now, but at the time this was very new. Um, You would go to school during your uh, research years of your fellowship and you would get a master's in epidemiology um, or or public health and essentially train to be a clinician, to train to be a researcher, a clinical researcher. And um, as he talked to me about this, I, I sort of linked back with the experience that I had in college that I sort of somewhat forgotten about, um, where I had learned research methodology and, and you know, ultimately had had taught it and realized how much I missed it. And so I decided to be one of the first people that ended up um, joining and and uh, this fellowship program. And so I, uh, th- and there were, I wasn't the only one. There was, um, there were other people in, in some other specialties, including nephrology, um, that were sort of going through this training together as physicians, having done residency, part of fellowship, and now going back to school and learning the the actual techniques involved in doing clinical research. University of Washington has a great school of public health, access to enormous uh, uh, observational studies because um, they were either coordinating centers or um, or one of the centers that was recruiting to large studies like uh, the cardiovascular health study, um, uh, cardia. There's a bunch of these cardiovascular research studies and, and others of these. And this is before big data was even a thing, right? And on top of that, in nephrology, because um, dialysis is, is reimbursed by Medicare, um, there was a requirement to capture data on all dialysis patients. And so the United States Renal Data System had enormous amounts of data that was captured on dialysis patients housed at the United you know, at the United States Renal Data System, which has moved around from one institution to the other. But part of what they did was mine these data. And so it was, it was sort of a beautiful place to be if you were young and didn't have large grants, you were a fellow and you wanted to mine large data with with under the you know, sort of um, umbrella of a, of a university and a school of public health that had deep expertise in biostats and epidemiology. And, um, and you could start to look at associations between various characteristics and disease and look at um, everything from end-stage renal disease in the United States Renal Data System to um, chronic kidney disease, where the, which was very poorly defined, but we were mining data from these cardiovascular outcome or cardiovascular observational studies to look at associations between risk factors and um, the development of chronic kidney disease. And so it was it was a really fun time to be in the middle of this because it was really at the front edge of it. It was the beginning of of sort of telling these stories about the power that these data sets could have, particularly in nephrology. And so... There's a lot of comorbidity there, a lot of oh, overlap. Yes, I mean, there's yeah. always people with chronic high blood pressure yeah. and they've got cardiovascular issues, but they also often have kidney issues. They do. There's diabetic nephropathy, yeah. Yeah. huge amount of diabetes. I mean, so there's... But nephrology, was, was this uh, like also an area just that felt like... It's a really common disease. There's all this, like, tr- all this work to figure out, like what's what's correlative and what's causative, yeah. and we don't have great therapies, or, or in, well, in some and, cases, and even just to characterize the size of the population, and and to you know to the 
in sometimes with disease, the first thing you need is just a call to action to say, this is how big this patient population is. This is the comorbidities associated with the disease. These are the outcomes associated with the disease. This is the death rate. Um, and, and this is how much it's costing society, both you know, from a financial, from a, a workforce, from the impact it has on people and their families. And so it's it's really epidemiology that characterizes this and, and creates that call to action. And then becomes hypothesis generating and and starts to identify factors that might um, excuse me put somebody at risk for developing a disease and therefore then ultimately need to be studied in clinical trials and so it's this sort of beautiful continuum we would I'd worked with uh, one of the biostatisticians who who would who would basically say you know he was actually more of a, a his research was more in 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 clinical trial methodology, but he was his philosophy on on epidemiologic data was let's try to make it look as as much as we can like a clinical trial, just in terms of being able to balance um, uh, all of the confounders that you might have in these analyses, so that we can most clearly identify factors that we think are predictive of disease or mitigating disease, so that then they can be ultimately used to identify a possible therapeutics or p potential pathways that might mitigate disease. This is when you're looking at observational data, yeah. it's retrospective, and there's a lot exactly. of these components. You're trying to pull out yeah. um, and I mean, make it as yeah, clean I mean, as it's, you can. It's, yeah, it's part, it's part of that research continuum. You know, you can get into a pile of trouble if you, uh, if you decide, for example, you know, you could do it um, – that classic, there's some classic examples of like, uh, if you look at uh, the association between arrhythmias and arrhythmias and mortality, of course, it's very high. And so what physicians did is they started trying to treat ventricular arrhythmias, but what they found in doing that was actually, actually increase the risk of death. And so just because there's an association doesn't mean there's causation and you can get yourself into trouble from a therapeutic standpoint if you don't understand that just because there's a causative relationship doesn't mean that if you if you alter whatever that what you think is causative, that it will also alter your outcome. It, it could alter it in the wrong direction. And so, you know, epidemiology and clinical and that's that type of clinical research plays an important role in hypothesis generating. Um, you know, and, and then you do your clinical trials ultimately to determine whether or not um, altering a factor is going to impact disease. Tired of spending hours searching for the exact research products and services you need? Scientist.com is here to help. Their award-winning digital platform makes it easy to find and purchase life science reagents, lab supplies, and custom research services from thousands of global laboratories. Scientist.com helps you outsource everything but the genius. Save time and money and focus on what really matters, your groundbreaking ideas. Learn more at scientist.com slash longrun. And for sponsorship opportunities on the Long Run Podcast, or to inquire about bringing me to your company or event for a speaking engagement, see my business development representative, Stephanie Barnes. Go to TimmermanReport.com and hit contact. Like I said, you, you got on the faculty at University of Washington, associate professor. Was this tenure track? Yeah, um, there isn't really tenure in the in a medical track per se. You just you know you start as an assistant professor, you get promoted to associate professor, and eventually a full professor, depending on 
Uh, it could be in a clinician tract or a research tract, depending okay. on what you've done. But so you're you're nephrolo- you're in the nephrology department, yeah. um, working on clinical trials in addition to yeah. So I, I finished my fellowship and I I started to um, to run the clinical research training program that I had had gone through and was mentoring fellows, had statistician. I also had a research nurse, and uh, the research nurse managed some clinical trials that I was running um, at the time. And so I spent most of my time as a faculty member um, doing that. I, I saw patients, but most of my time was doing clinical research. Okay. Okay. So... When did you decide to make the move to industry? So I'd I'd been on the faculty for it was probably about five, a little over five years at the time, and it it was not planned. If you had asked me five years after I'd been on the faculty, will you join industry? I would have said, "What are you talking about? I'm going to stay in academics forever. I love what I'm doing, and this is this is just a ton of fun." Um, I ended up, uh, a recruiter contacted me and was very, very persistent. And they were uh, recruiting for a position at Amgen. And um, I I eventually was talking to one of our medical liaisons that said, you know, you should just fly down there and check it out. You know, I had no idea, no idea at all what it meant to work in industry. It was just a big black box. And so I was like, all right, it's, you know, fly down to California. And so I, I remember the visit very distinctly because, again, it was just this blurry black box. And I went down, and this is in, when was it, 2003? And uh, actually, it was probably 2002 at the time. And I remember f- going down there, and everybody seemed really excited and happy. And this was kind of the the adolescence, I would say, of uh, of Amgen. The company was growing. They had plenty of money uh, from to to be able to spend on on drug development um, based on epigen and Aranesp had been approved, Nupigen and Nulasta, and that kind of adolescence. We can conquer the world and um, do whatever it takes to get there. Roger Perlmutter had been there for a couple of years, and they, they had very few physicians, though. And so I, I went down there, and I remember people were happy and collaborative and focused and um, just had this belief that they could change the world, you know, uh, that they could build uh, they could continue to to develop therapeutics that were truly needle moving, and I mean, I, you know, I'm a nephrologist, and so I I know the impact that EPO had on dialysis patients, but I also remember as a resident um, uh, seeing patients on oncology rotations. You know, they 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 get admitted to the hospital, you'd give them their chemotherapy, and you just waited until they spiked a fever got incredibly sick and and you watched as their you know white blood cell count dropped and hoped that it it came back up again in a reasonable period of time and then nupigen was introduced and it it was needle moving and so i i started you know really thinking about what i was going to do and what i i wanted to do going forward and and i decided i wanted to be part of this about this sort of singular focus to to change the lives of patients in in a in a really meaningful and profound way, and uh, I just took a, a huge leap of faith. And family, uh, you know, went down to California, and and I joined Amgen. So, and what was your job there? So I I started out as a I guess a clinical scientist was probably what it was called at the time, and I 
I had no idea what I was doing when I got there. I remember just sort of, because it was a, a little bit of a wild west at the time in Amgen. There wasn't like a, a very organized onboarding program. And I remember just trying to figure out what my job description was. What was I really supposed to do? So, you know, and, and I tell people now, you know, when you join as a physician, you bring sort of 20% of a of a skill set that's useful. Your, you know, sort of medical acumen, um, and maybe a little bit more if you have a, a skill set where you've learned to, you know, drive things, if you've got leadership skills, strategic skills. But no one teaches you what what it means to to work in a company, much less in a in a biotech company. And so you just roll your sleeves up and you just, uh, for me, I asked a thousand questions and it kind of jumped in. And so my job at the time was just to support um, gosh, I think I, it was the Sensapire program at the time and um, helped them write some protocols and some things like that. It, after about six months after I was there, one the person that was running the Epigen and Aranas, the physician running the Epigen and Aranas program, was moving into a different role and they asked me if I would take his job. And so I was now not supporting somebody that was leading um, a program. I was going to lead the program. And I remember very distinctly, again, it, you know, I nobody, there's no playbook. And I remember sitting there with this guy that was running the program and him whiteboarding all of the things I was supposed to do and thinking, oh my gosh, I, I got to figure out like seven different things that I've never done before. And again, it was just this fabulous time at Amgen that if you were the kind of person that loved tackling problems and weren't afraid to ask questions, knew to how to, you know, sort of rally folks and drive things forward, could think strategically, you just got plucked and thrown into roles, you know, things that never really happen in mature companies. And so I got an opportunity to do so many things and see so much as Amgen matured through, you know, adolescence and late adolescence and early adulthood and and see that evolution of the of the company during the time I was there. Well, the Epigen Air and Asp franchise was a huge part of the company, ha half of its revenue or more, I well, think. Yeah, um, and it, it, it kept the lights on and was, you know, so needle moving for, for so many patients. But while I was there, the, you know, when I first picked up as this global development leader for um, Epigen and Air and Asp, was at a time when we thought that we were going to decrease the risk of cardiovascular disease in uh, in chronic kidney disease patients, giving them ARNS, so giving or giving them ARNS, so uh, an erythropoietic, prior to the time that they started dialysis. And I remember, you know, this was the first large study uh, they the company had ever run. I think there were going to be thirty five hundred patients in the study, and it was a big decision. And so we kicked the study off and. At the beginning, we were having to sort of convince investigators that this was ethical to have a placebo arm because there was just this deep-seated belief that, that this drug was going to decrease cardiovascular risk. And then there was some data that came out during the trial, not from us, but um, from, from another uh, company that suggested that there was a higher risk of cardiovascular events associated with erythropoietic agents. So I remember this well. Right? There was a big controversy. It yeah. roiled Amgen's and, and J and J's stock, and uh, there were there was lots of consternation in the medical community about yeah. whether we were trying to move too early or or dose too much. Uh, yeah, if you you know we're, we're if you. If you raise someone's hemoglobin too high, were you potentially going to make increase their thrombotic risk? I mean, no one knew. No one knew. No one knew whether the data were real, because um, it wasn't the the data came out of a study that wasn't the the, the best designed study. 
And in the meantime, we're running this enormous study to answer the question. So you go from convincing people that, you know, there is equipoise in having a placebo group to wondering, is there equipoise in having an active treatment arm? And so it was it was a very interesting journey during the course of the time that I was working with the study. You were in the hot seat. Yeah, no, it was, it was, again, it was just this really, you know, this amazing experience. And I, one thing I, I think sometimes people don't appreciate either is, you know, is, a, is particularly, I think, as a physician working in, in biotech or pharma, when you're responsible for clinical trial programs, you have feel an enormous weight on your shoulders because you always want to make the right decisions for patients, you know, is, and often it's, you're working in a lot of ambiguity. There's a safety signal that pops up. They're never black and, I mean, sometimes they're black and white. They are very rarely early on black and white. So you're, you're constantly trying to evaluate the data and be balanced so that you, you don't become so conservative that you don't allow a therapeutic that could be incredibly meaningful for patients to progress, but also don't miss something. And it's, it's, it's a weight that you have on your shoulders all the time, just in terms of decision making. But so it was, it was a wonderful learning experience. I ended up um, moving off of that and sort of de-differentiating from nephrology and became the therapeutic area head for the bone program. And so uh, denosumab was being developed at the time for osteoporosis and um, for bone, la bone loss associated with hormone ablation therapy and for bone mets prevention. And so this was a joint program between oncology and um, and uh, and the osteoporosis team. I was on, I was leading the uh, bone therapeutic area that was focusing on bone loss, but I I was doing this jointly with Roy Baines, who at the time was the therapeutic area head in um, in oncology, and um, and this was an, a, another phenomenal opportunity because it was so much focus on these on this program, and uh, um, and the it was really the one of the first times that antibodies were going into primary care. And so um, there was a huge amount of education that needed to happen for all of the stakeholders to under to to demystify uh, antibodies in in primary care. Um, and again, just a phenomenal learning experience. Uh, you know, the studies were enormous, and um, the program. I think we had I don't know thirty clinical trials that were in the uh, in the package that went into the the filing that went into the FDA. You know, presented at the advisory board. So again, just had a, a ton of experience in in watching this. And then we were also responsible as as therapeutic area heads for. Um, there was no separate medical affairs group, so also life cycle management afterwards. And so it was, it was, uh, yeah. These were big growth years for Amgen as a company and, and for you too, yeah. uh, uh, learning um, the industry. Yeah. And uh, how many years were you there at Amgen? Almost 13. Um, my, I stayed um, until both of my kids were in college and we had actually never planned on being on the West Coast for more than three years. And it was 25 at that point. So my husband and I and and kids all wanted to get back out East. And so um, I ended up leaving Amgen and I took a job at Regeneron. And I, 
you know, you know, again, another great experience, a company that had many commonalities with Amgen, both being deeply experienced in antibodies. Regeneron at the time, I think, had just hit their 3,000-person mark, so much, much smaller than Amgen was at the time. And the clinical development group was actually still pretty small because of the way Regeneron had been structured. And having done a lot of um, partnerships, their clinical group was less mature than it might have been for the size of the company. And so I I joined and um, started working on a, uh, a program for a uh, pain program. Uh, and uh, it was it was a really interesting experience. A, I, I realized I learned a lot at Amgen because I would sometimes I would do the smallest things and people would be like, oh, that was like so helpful. And I'd be like, really, it was it was I'm glad it was. Helpful. I was going to say, know. like, your experience at Amgen was probably yeah. quite relevant to it what was. they needed at that time. And that was part of the attraction of going to Regeneron. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to go join a company now after having a dozen years of experience? So now this time I, I know what I'm doing. I've I've seen a lot and to sort of do things over again. And um, and it was. Was. It was it was a different experience, and it, in part it was different. The culture was different at Regeneron, especially compared to the way Amgen was at the time that I I left, and it um, it was uh, it, it was just at a very different place again in in terms of the maturity of the clinical group, and so it provided an interesting opportunity for me to also see how things are done differently. You know, you you stay somewhere for long enough and it's your only experience. You know things are done differently, but you don't have a very good sense of it. And, you know, whenever you first, somebody first says, but we're going to do it this way, your automatic response is, well, no, it needs to be done this way. And and so it, it was an opportunity for me to see other ways of doing things. Um, Regeneron, you know, has, and I think continues and probably will always have a very deep commitment to science and innovative research, a fearlessness that I, you know, I deeply appreciated. Um, they're just a fearlessness that uh, um, follow the science. The, the company says that and they really mean it in a, in a truly fearless sort of way. They don't make decisions, at least while I was there, based on projected revenues or a lot of the other things that can end up happening with companies as they mature it's it's about the science and the opportunity for patients and so it was it was fun to see a a, a culture that um, um, again was uh, had a, a deep uh, appreciation for innovation like Amgen did um, but it it had a, a more of a, a founder driven culture, which was a bit different than Amgen and and uh, one that one can appreciate when one is there. So yeah. So how did you end up coming to Boston and the startup world? Yeah. So <laughs> I so I ended up for the last year and a half or so that I was at Regeneron, I ended up running clinical operations, and I I did that in part because. Um, the group needed to be matured a bit um, because it was now running a, a lot of clinical trials. And I, I sort of helped to get that on track and in a way that I felt comfortable was in a good place and, and was going to continue to grow and mature. But I knew I didn't want to run clinical operations forever. And I wanted to get up to Boston. I wanted to be part of the biotech community. And um, I... Uh, um, and, and so I, I decided I was going to go. What, what made you think that? I, well, so I like challenges. Um, I'd been working in large, um, biotech for a while and, um, 
You know, it was funny. When I when I started looking around, I wanted to take a chief medical officer role on. There's not much as much in that space in the New York area. I wanted to be in Boston anyway. And it was actually at the time sort of hard to figure out how to find your way into that system. Once you're in the system and in the ecosystem, it's a, a world that makes sense and it's it's you can figure out how to navigate. But when you're outside of the system, it's it's hard to figure out how to find a doorway in. And I I wanted to find a doorway in and figure out this this ecosystem. Yeah, what was that doorway for you? So I I knew the head of regulatory at Sarepta, who had been my regulatory counterpart at Amgen. They needed a chief medical officer. And so I, I got recruited to Sarepta. So I became the chief medical officer there. I'd never worked in rare disease before. And what uh, year was this? So this was, oh, yeah, this was 2015, I think. Um, and so... I got so a Teplerson was not yet approved. Just, just approved. It had just been approved. Yeah, okay. and so I got this crash course in rare disease, and you know Amgen had always made a very purposeful decision. They weren't going to work in rare disease. Regeneron was a little bit, but this was this was rare disease through and through. And I, I remember, you know, walking in on one of my first days and seeing a, a patient with DMD in the waiting room and thinking, oh my gosh, there's a patient here. There, there can't be patients in the office at a, you know, and you you quickly realize the the closeness that you end up uh, with a, a rare disease community. And it's it it is a necessary and important thing. You you become so much closer to the disease and what it means to patients and families and the impact it has. I think for people that have worked in rare disease, you feel closer to the disease that you're touching than any any space I think that you work in. Um, and I, I think that was his, was particularly relevant in, in a, a very long time period where there wasn't much attention paid to rare disease. And so... Um, so I, 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 I did that for a year or so in that time period, I ended up meeting, uh, Jason Rhodes, who had recruited me to a board position at Generation Bio. And at, at some point. So now you're in. Jason was, uh, was a partner at Atlas. Yeah, he was a partner at Atlas. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I made a commitment to myself when I moved to Boston that I would, have coffee with anyone that wanted to have coffee and network. I'm, I'm an introvert by, you know, nature. And, uh, but I, I committed to myself that I was, I was just going to, I was going to meet people and network and understand what this ecosystem was. And so I started to do that when I first got up to Boston, but it was really, um, uh, after I met, at met Jason and then, uh, Jeff McDonough, the CEO of, of Generation Bio, that a lot more doors started to open up in terms of my ability to just sort of really kind of understand the ecosystem. And, and as part of that, Jason asked me if I would be ever interested in coming in as an entrepreneur in residence at Atlas. And I remember thinking, oh, I don't have any idea what an EIR was. So I'm like, you know, trying to like look on the internet and trying to figure out actually what does an EIR do? And I ended up sitting down with um, somebody that had had been an EIR that was now a CSO and and her telling me about the experience. And I thought, wow, this sounds pretty cool. There's all this science going on at this time. And a lot of it needs someone like you with medical training to yeah. figure out how to translate it, to, to you know, tee it up for eventual clinical development. 
and and that's what I did. And so Jason had an I think an appreciation for the importance of <clears throat> excuse me providing that end of the road perspective to these very early companies that are just starting to um <laughs> who are just starting to think about what their indication strategy is and and how they're going to tell the story of some amazing technology and science in the context of how it's going to be meaningful to patients and so i came in and was uh um, providing some of that, you know, support and then just general strategic support to some of the early incubator companies. And it was just so much fun. You know, you're sitting in this, you know, in, in the office space with Atlas and I'm, uh, you know, there's all of these companies that are incubating and you get to know each other and, um, uh, interact with each other and everybody's doing something different. And so in a very, so I did this for about a year and a half. And in that span of time, I worked with a number of different companies. I primarily worked with Dyne Therapeutics and Disarm Therapeutics, a little bit with Q32, a little bit with Akiro. And then you get pulled into odds and ends of other things. And so in a very short period of time, you're you're touching multiple different kinds of technology, different therapeutic areas, um, different partners at, at Atlas, different team members on, on the teams, different boards. I mean, I had this amazing crash course in small biotech. You said you like variety before oh from being gosh. an internist. Was, this is the candy it store. Was, it truly was. And 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 it's happening at a time where I don't, you know, it, it's hard. It would have been hard to imagine in 2003 when I joined Amgen that not that many years later, there was going to be an opportunity to touch so many different possible approaches to treat disease. At that time, it was antibodies and small molecules. And, you know, it was Amgen, Regeneron, um, Genentech. I mean, there weren't many companies that could do antibodies. And, and now you just, you look at the, the myriad of, of approaches. Um, and, and for a physician, I mean, what can be better than that? Thinking about how many different shots on goal you can have to treat um, a range of diseases. And now with, you know, genetic medicine, it's, uh, I feel incredibly lucky to have been able to see so much in, in a relatively short period of time. Now, let's fast forward a little bit. I know one of these companies you got involved with was Obsidian. You met an individual there, Vic Meyer. I did. Yeah. Uh, so I, I ultimately ended up joining Obsidian, which was another Atlas portfolio company. I knew the CEO at the time, and he asked me to come in and build a, a development capability. Um, I, so I, I came in, and at the time, we uh, the, the company had actually never had a CSO before. And as I was leaving being an EIR, Vic, who had just left Editas, um, was becoming an EIR at uh, at Atlas. And we had a project that we didn't have any internal expertise for. And there was somebody that had been at Editas and suggested we call Vic. And so we uh, we brought Vic in. This is just before COVID. I think it was the, the last time I'd seen him in person for a very long time afterwards. And um, and we just really clicked. I, I uh, you know, we we had this great meeting to talk about the project. I liked the way he thought and liked, you know, the the kind of just the the way he interacted. And so we kept talking, and eventually, I convinced him to spend about half of his time as an EIR helping to um, reboot the scientific strategy at um, at the company. I I ended up at at Obsidian doing a, a, a host of things while I was there. A fair amount of um, 
just uh, kind of maturing of the strategy, but in in touching a wide range of pieces of the company, I started to think might be fun to be a, a CEO and actually, but but be a CEO at a company that is just starting. I in my career I've done a host of I've, I've taken on a host of roles where I've come in in the middle of something that needs some uh, maturing and. I, I find that satisfying. It's, you know, you can kind of get to the end of that. It's like when I spent that year and a half running ClinOps, it, you know, you kind of get to the other end and you can look back and say, wow, you know, it looked like this and now let's see what it looks like. It's functioning so much better now. I really wanted to start somewhere from the beginning, take all of the the sorts of learnings that I had um, had had and try to incorporate them from the beginning in a company to build a really solid, scalable foundation and Vic and I would talk about these sorts of things periodically, and we'd occasionally talk about, well, you know, should we spin something out? Should we, like, wouldn't it be fun if we did something someday? And one day I said to him, hey, Vic, what do you think about epigenetic editing? And at the time, there were no epigenetic editing companies out there, really. And so he said, why are you asking me about epigenetic editing? And it turned out that I had been contacted by... Um, I'd been contacted by David Liu about an opportunity to join as a CEO of a newly formed epigenetic editing company. And Vic had been contacted by somebody else to join as the CSO of that same company. And so we were getting both recruited to the same company, and, and which was, was quite nice, actually, because we had an opportunity to really think through this together, think through whether we were going to be really compatible as, as a team um, starting a company if what was important to us were the same sorts of things and if our vision was was similar. Um, and ultimately, we both decided to join the company. We joined, you know, essentially at the same time, um, which, you know, has some advantages. You know, a lot of times CSOs join, the CEO comes later, you know, you, you got to kind of like feel each other out. And we we joined, you know, very well aligned when we started. You'd be the CEO, he'd be the CSO. And this is the formation of Chroma. Yeah. Uh, and when when did this happen? 2020? So this was 2020, yeah. Okay. And uh, So you're, you're operating in stealth there for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what was the, the big idea that attracted both of you? So I think we were looking for a number of things, which I think Chroma ended up uh, checking the box on all of them. So we were looking for really interesting needle-moving science. Science, I, and certainly for me, it was I, I was intrigued with telling a story for the first time. So not the story of science that already existed and how you're going to make a permutation and how that's going to you know sort of fit in, but 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 a technology that you're telling the story for the first time. Um, that sort of creativeness. How do you communicate that in a way that? is clear and meaningful and and creates a vision to me was was also in, very interesting and and uh, something I thought was intriguing. Um, we had a great foundational set of team members. There weren't very many, but in talking to them, um, they had uh, the, they were they were very strong scientifically, but culture was also very important to them and and building a company that had a strong and sustainable culture. Um, we had a, a fantastic group of founders that had deep expertise in genomic medicine, and uh, we had investors that we believed in, and, and we knew they believed in us. Okay, but the first generation of genome editing was about 
editing the genes with CRISPR. And right. everybody's heard about that. Um, and that is a really powerful tool. Very um, powerful. Why would anyone want to edit the epigenome the, so that you could, what, silence genes but without, um, you know, doing the actual cutting? Yes, you don't cut or nick the DNA. So, so we think of the DNA is the hardware and the epigenome is the software. And the epigenome is really, it's a very highly conserved, very highly evolved mechanism that is important for all of us. We would not exist without the epigenome. It's the epigenome is the system that determines cell fate. It determines the function and phenotype of all of our cells. And it does so in a way that is durable, despite the fact that your cells divide, it passes that along without ever changing anything in the DNA. So every one of our cells has the same DNA. And it, you know, it's it's kind of obvious when you think about it, they all have the same DNA, but we've got cells that do very, very different things and look very differently. It's not the DNA that drives that phenotype. It's the epigenome. The expression. It's, it's well, it's the epigenome that determines which genes are on and which genes are off. And it does that um, uh, to a large extent by how the chromatin is packaged. So if you have DNA that's open, then genes are uh, available to be read, and that open genome is characterized by being poorly methylated. If you laid out a bunch of methyl marks on the DNA, it packs that DNA down. Those genes aren't as available to be read, and those genes are quiet. And so it's this—it's—it's um, it's a really uh, fascinating system that has to be highly evolved. It has to be very predictable or our cells wouldn't remain, they, they, they would lose their phenotype over time. And so the, the, the epigenome is actually pretty constant over the lifetime of a patient. It, it can change, but more often for pathologic reasons than, than not. And so we leverage this endogenous system that we know works very, very well. We leverage that to regulate gene expression. So we can either methylate a gene of interest, and we utilize the, a lot of the technology or some of the technology that has been used for um, gene editing, for example, to be able to guide our our uh, our construct to a very specific gene. And then we can either methylate that gene that quiets the gene and silences the gene, or we can demethylate a gene, which uh, which would activate a gene. And so it's um, uh, there's some advantages of doing this. Some of them are are kind of the obvious ones. You don't cut or nick the DNA, and so you don't have to worry about some of the the concerns around cutting and nicking the DNA, um, like transpositions and concerns uh, that you're going to get, you know, downstream deleterious effects from from uh, from transpositions, for example. But one of the things that I think is underappreciated is when you use gene editing to silence a gene. The gene's not really silent. You're kind of breaking the gene. It's still making a gene product. That gene product could be immunogenic. It could have other effects, but it's not silent. When we methylate a gene, it's perfect quiet, perfectly silent. The gene doesn't make a gene product. And, uh, um, you know, I think that has that certainly has some advantages in being a more kind of natural way of, of silencing a gene. Um, I think there's also probably some diseases where uh, completely silencing a gene can uh, can also have some advantages. Can you talk about the the target? It's or the the technology that you're using. Like, what? Uh, how do you deliver it? And and is there a, a piece of genetic cargo that's 
that's uh, binding. Uh, yeah, so it's it's got a, a couple of it's it's sort of a typical genomic medicine uh, uh, approach. So you've got a delivery modality. So you have to deliver the the uh, the the drug to wherever you want to go, and so um, the most uh, tried and true delivery modalities now are lipid nanoparticles or AAV. Those are our typical delivery modalities that you could deliver uh, our technology with. As other delivery modalities um, continue to grow and develop, you know, we can utilize those for delivery. Um, the construct itself um, is, uh, um, if we're delivering it to a lipid nanoparticle, is, is RNA. And um, there's a couple of parts to it is, is typical for genomic medicine. So we have our, um, we have a couple of effector domains and these effector domains, one of them um, quiets transcription and the other is either a methylation or either quiets or activates transcription. The other is a methylation or demethylation, depending on whether you're activating or silencing. But let's just, for example, silencing, you would essentially come in with the construct, it would be delivered there'd be a guide RNA if you were using a dead Cas9, and that guide RNA would guide the the, uh, the effector domains to a very specific spot, a very specific gene that you were interested in. And then you have these effector domains, one of which quiets the locus down with uh, this uh, transcriptional repressor, and the other comes in and methylates the, the gene. And so it, it lays down methyl marks on the gene and, and shuts, the gene to, shuts the gene down. Mm. So you can send a couple different kinds of instructions with that single um, delivery. Uh, so what, yeah, package. so what's interesting about this is the it's pretty modular, and so the transcriptional repressor and the methylation domain don't vary. Uh, if you're silencing, you can silence any gene with, with those two domains. They don't change. What changes in the case of a dead Cas9 approach would be the guide RNA. And so you would just, so you, you can silence two genes at once. You just put in two guide RNAs and that would guide your effector domains to one gene or guide it, guide the effector domain, domain to another gene. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's really, we think is quite differentiating about our platform is our ability to multiplex, uh, which means that we can target multiple genes at once. Um, and so we can target uh, multiple genes, tar silence multiple genes, or we can use a combination of activation and silencing. And so for diseases that where multiple pathways are important in disease pathogenesis, this could be um, quite needle moving. Interesting. Now, when we spoke uh, at your Series A financing, I think this was late 21, you had said that you wanted to pick some targets yeah. that were pretty tried and true, that you wanted more of the the risk to be in the technology, everything you've just described, putting together your modality yeah. and making sure it does what it's intended to. But um, that uh, you wanted that underlying biology that you were binding with to have already been well understood. Is that how you're still thinking about um, your priorities? Yeah, so so we have multiple programs that are up and running. Um, the, the program that is, I would say, our workhorse program it meets those criteria. So there were two things that were important to us. One is that we could very quickly, clearly, and cleanly validate the technology. So that means that it needs to be a delivery technology that isn't going to confuse results of the study. It's got to be validated. And we need to understand the biology. And there needs to be some good biomarkers. And we need to be able to get 
very quick answers. We need to understand the pharmacology. Um, but we also wanted at the same time to bring programs forward that were differentiated, that showcased the advantages of the technology. And so um, the vast majority of our programs um, showcase multiplexing, again, an area that we think is quite differentiating for us. Mm-hmm. You just raised a Series B significant amount, which is not easy at this point in time. Uh, What would you say were the couple of things that you accomplished in the last year that made that possible? So I think it's been a few things. It certainly has been a great data for year for us, and we're we're excited to sometime this year present some of the really interesting data that we've been that we've generated. I think it was. It, it surprised us in its uh, in how interesting the data was, and so we're very very excited to be able to share it. Um, and I, I think it it really helped investors see what this technology had the potential to do. I think we've also been very planful. Um, we've done what we've said we were going to do. We've done it in a an organized fashion, and uh, you know, there's a certain amount of. Um, um, I think, you know, benefiting and credibility that you get when you set out a plan, you follow that plan and and uh, and you end up with with good results. I think we also have built a really strong team. We've been very uh, careful about building our team. Um, we're very thoughtful about making sure that we've got the right scientific expertise, but that we've also built a culture that um, is a is an environment where people enjoy working here. It's a fulfilling career for them. They feel inspired. Uh, by what we're doing in their team members, and they want to stay and and work here. And um, and I think that was visible as we were raising money. So it's I think it's it's been a combination of of things that allowed us to be able to to raise money. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I noticed in our first interview was that you and Vic did the interview together, and I thought you had good rapport. I, I thought it was it was. There were certain questions that were for the CEO and some that were for the CSO, and that was evident, and you just could almost finish yeah. each other's sentences. Uh, but but there was also just a respect and a deference there, which um, I don't always see. Sometimes you, you see people that are kind of thrown together and they yeah. don't really- No, we've, you know, you go through a lot with the person that you're going through this experience with. You spend a lot of time, you don't always have the same uh, perspective and opinions on things, and you have to have a deep sense of trust and respect for the person that you're working with, and and care about them deeply. And I think Vic and I had that relationship from the beginning, where we um, we trusted and respected each other, and we knew that we have you know good days and bad days, and and we're going to help each other through them and give each other a break when we need to, and prop them up uh, when when you need to be propped up. And it, you know, it, um, it I, I can't imagine working with, uh, with, with somebody else on this journey as, as a, as my partner in this, he's been, um, you know, he's, he's just been a fantastic partner. And I, one last question for the CEO, your long-term vision for this, where do you think epigenetic editing will fit into that clinical toolbox versus gene editing versus all these other modalities that are out there. Yeah, so I think uh, so I think of of epigenetic editing as the modality of co- choice for gene regulation. As you pointed out, uh, gene editing is an incredibly powerful tool. We see gene editing's role as being in in gene replacement. If if epigenetic editing and and gene editing had been developed at the same time or initiated development at the same time, 
think epigenetic editing would have uh, been seen very obviously from the beginning as as the ideal tool for regulating the genome. It's an endogenous system when applied with our uh, 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 with our technology. It, it's it's impressive what it, it can do. It does what it's supposed to do, and so I, I see gene regulation as being the sweet spot. But over the long run, my you know, personal, personal long-term vision is that we, as we better understand the role that the epigenome plays in disease pathology, we're going to be very well positioned to be able to address changes or abnormalities in the epigenome that are driving disease. And I suspect those are going to be the complex diseases that we have had a very difficult time addressing because it's not a single gene that's driving a disease. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a set of changes in gene expression that's driving that disease um, that have resulted in changes in the, by changes in the epigenome. And these won't have to be personalized? These will be? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think that we're gonna find that there's uh, common changes in the epigenome that drive disease. We already know uh, that there are, are, you know, changes, actually we were just talking to uh, someone a couple of weeks ago that was talking about the changes that you see in the epigenome in rheumatoid arthritis prior to the development of rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and there's there's many changes in the epigenome, but there's going to be certain of those changes, I think, that are ultimately going to be the drivers of disease. And we have the tools now to be able to understand the uh, relationship between changes in the epigenome and then changes in gene expression and then how those changes in, in, in gene expression ultimately drive disease. But what's also interesting, too, and this is a more recent finding, is that the durability and the heritability. Uh, that, cool. that, like people, uh, there's been just so cool, such cool science there that people would have said, yes, that's definitely true with genetics. Well, that's the basis of inheritance. But seeing that you can pass this down with epigenetic changes, and you can, you can also do this with, with silencing, with your technology, yeah. you, you can stop... Uh, yeah. a heritable disease. One well, of theoretically course it, you can and of course it 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 makes sense because we must pass our epigenome from mother to daughter cell or our hepatocyte wouldn't know what cell to be when the cell was dividing. And so there was a a strong reason to believe that we would see durable changes in gene expression. The the mechanism by which our cells pass the uh blueprint for the epigenome from one cell to the next you know, basically looks at one strand of the DNA and says, what's methylated here? I'm going to methylate it on the other strand after cell division. Um, and and that's how we pass down, uh, that's how we pass our epigenome, the blueprint of our epigenome from uh, during cell division. And so there was good reason to believe that we would see durability. But I think it's still, when you see it, it's still, it's, it's impressive. Um, it's just impressive to see, again, the elegance of the human body. Well, I look forward to seeing where you go with this, uh, with indications and clinical development plans off in the future. Um, it's an exciting time. Yeah, um, very exciting time. I feel very, very lucky. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me on The Long Run. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.